Good morning, Grace. Thank you so much for that song, Walt. That's a great uh, intro to the passage that we have before us. I'm uh, excited to uh, and humbled to be able to preach this one. My name is Eric Twisselman. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Grace. And uh, if you're new here, we want to welcome you. And uh, we are preaching through the book of First Peter, and we are in chapter two. We're gonna begin by uh, reading verses 13 through 17. That's the text for us this morning. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 17. And if we could, could we stand in honor of God and his word as we read together? And I'm reading out of the ESV. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for your guidance. We pray that your word would impress itself on our hearts that it would empower us, that it would give us courage, that you would teach us about yourself, about your character, and about what you want from us. May it strengthen us, encourage us, so that we can obey these things in our own world. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope we've all had a good week. And a super Tuesday. <laughs> that was not, yeah. We live in interesting political times, don't we? If, if, if we've all been paying attention, maybe, maybe we've kind of shut that off and, oh gosh, now I have to hear it on Sunday too. Um, years from now, how will future generations remember this particular time? What will they think of us? How will those who rule the political headlines of today stack up against the larger backdrop of human history? What will the historians say? She was a conniving, power-hungry, back-channel dealer who gained political power due to her family connections, and in particular, a marriage of convenience that all those in her inner circle knew to be a sham enmeshed in every kind of scandal and political intrigue and with few political accomplishments of which she could positively boast, she nevertheless gained title as the head of state until her own personal and political corruption caught up with her. He was a boastful, arrogant megalomaniac who, though early in his career, managed an empire with charismatic skill and leadership, later became increasingly erratic and xenophobic. 
He adored being in the public eye, and he had no public shame, giving himself over to the worst kinds of debauchery. He fancied himself as something of an artistic genius, and when he sabotaged, indeed destroyed, part of his own vast empire, he tried to evade criticism by shifting the blame and scapegoating a minority. You, of course, know who I'm talking about. I'm referring, of course, to Emperor Nero and his mother. (laughs) Did you think I was referring to someone else? (laughs) Odd, okay. Well, I am talking about Emperor Nero and his wife, or excuse me, his mother, Agrippina. Uh, Let's start with Agrippina, uh, who seduced and married her own uncle and then later arranged his murder. Yeah, who bore the title of empress briefly, secured her son Nero's ascendancy to the throne, only to be murdered later by his henchmen. This Nero was the same emperor who set fire to Rome and then blamed the Christians for it, launching a terrible, fiery persecution. And it was under his authority that Peter and most likely Paul were martyred in Rome. Some other emperors who were fresh in the minds of Peter's audience at this time, just before uh, Nero, we had Claudius, as one historian writes, the bumbling man who became emperor against all odds, who showed a strange inconsistency of temper, a crazy man. Before him, you had Caligula, who declared himself as a god, who promoted the wealthy, <laughs> talk about political favors, to the, to his high, as his high priests, and then granted the consulship to his favorite horse. I'm not making this up. And before him, you had Tiberius Caesar, a man whose sexual perversions and appetites were so disgusting, I wish I hadn't read them, and I won't say them out loud. This is the political backdrop against which Peter writes, subject yourselves. Does this passage have implications for us today? You bet it does. The question on many of our minds this morning and perhaps for the better part of year, who's going to be our next president? Heck, who's gonna get the nomination? Who's gonna be the next Supreme Court justice Who is going to protect my freedom? But next to these Caesars, these emperors, our own political landscape with its free elections, checks and balances, a peaceful transfer of executive power every four to eight years, doesn't look so bad. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. By this comparison, I don't mean to minimize the political chaos and and evil that we in our own generation see. And nor am I saying that we should be politically apathetic or disengaged. Instead, it's to remind us that there has never been an earthly power, a human regime that God hasn't been able to handle and that his kingdom is forever. Forever. 
I'm so glad we sang that song. That song was in my mind as I was preparing, and once again, Walt just, yeah. It's like we're, using, it's like we're sharing a brain sometimes. I need it later. <laughs> it's for this kingdom, this eternal forever kingdom, not of this earth, that we are to ultimately devote our allegiance and our labor. Dave Talley reminded us last week that this is not our true home. And he just so beautifully showed us how Peter is exhorting us out of the kingdom wisdom that he gained from Christ himself in the Gospels. And so Peter, just as he was discipled by Christ, is now discipling us, and we need to disciple one another in these things. I think our passage has at least three big ideas this morning that I want us to uh, come away with, and if you want to jot those down, we'll be seeing them throughout this passage as we walk through it and try to make some application. Number one, Peter wants us to know and respond in obedience to the fact that all human authority is established by God to serve his purposes. All human authority is established by God to establish, or excuse me, to serve his purposes. Number two, we have been set free in order to serve. We have been set free in order to serve. And number three, Christ's servants will be known by their honor, their love, and their holy fear. So let's walk through the the passage a little bit and, and, and see how these things teach us. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him who pun- to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. I want to begin by pointing out that uh, verse 13 and following, this little bit we have here, is actually an introduction to a longer passage that we're going to be covering through multiple weeks. It starts a whole section on how to live lives in submission. It will address servants, it will address wives, it will address husbands, and lest any of us get too smug, in chapter three, verse eight, all of you. Um, We don't have time to go to this passage, but uh, if if you wanna look at that uh, later, There's a parallel passage here. Uh, Paul is on the same page with Peter here, and we we see Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, maybe unpacking this this idea a little bit more of why we subject ourselves. But there's enough clarity in these verses we can can see. Why do we uh, submit ourselves? Well, number one, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, and that's, that's a question we gotta have simmering on the back burner because we're gonna come to that. What is What does that mean? What are his purposes, okay? But he explains this. God has sent governing authorities to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Gordon Clark, uh, late Christian philosopher and theologian, writes this in his book, A Christian View of Men and of Things, uh, amplifying, commentating on these passages. He says, sinful man needs to be restrained. The Christian position is that the state is not an unconditional good, 
But without civil government, each man's evil nature would turn his freedom into intolerable actions. The existence of the state is a partial punishment and cure for sin. I might add the word temporary on earth under the sun. You see, human institutions, governments, remind us that we have a sin problem. They remind us that there is much in our world that still needs fixing. And so we might look at authority that God has placed over us, even earthly authority, as a reminder of this greater truth. And we can at least praise God that even though we don't always agree with the governing authorities, they at least remind us that there's this problem we're all trying to solve, and that is human sin and wickedness. But we are to submit for the Lord's sake. So what is for the Lord's sake? What are his purposes? That brings us to point two. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should, look, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. For this is the will of God. I, I'm privileged to work with uh, young people, college students, high schoolers, and I've had lots of conversations and, and uh, times when they've, they've come to me for advice or they had questions, they wanted me to pray about something. And, and one of the leading things that I hear from the youth is how do I find God's will for my life? Well, isn't it great when God just plops his will down for your life right here on paper? I like to point them to passages like this, right? It is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. And here's another one. It's the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, this silencing of foolish people, that sounds a little combative, doesn't it? It doesn't mean make the Facebook thread go, go dark because <laughs> nobody wants to talk to you anymore. <laughs> we need to interpret this in context of uh, last week's passage, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why do we want foolish ignorance silenced? Because that's at the root of their unbelief. We want to silence those who are slandering us, but not just us, the cause of Christ. People who misunderstand what Christianity and Christ is all about. Why? So that on the day he visits us, on the day he returns, there might be more of us to give thanks and glory to God. We want to silence the ignorance and unbelief so that they can hear what the Spirit is saying, so that they can hear God's word, so that they can respond to it. That's the purpose. And if we don't get that right, well, then I think we're gonna be a little obnoxious. You see, we've been set free by what Christ has done. Now, I need to talk about this word freedom. Here we live in the United States, we live in the West, 
And we might be filtering that word free, freedom, liberty, through our own cultural lens. And Peter is not talking about political freedom here. Now he's talking more about the kind of freedom that Peter's master, Jesus Christ, taught him when he washed his feet. Jesus says, truly I say, he said this is in John chapter eight, verses 34 through 36. Jesus says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The freedom that Peter is talking about is the freedom from sin we have been sprinkled by his blood. Remember that in chapter one. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's the kind of freedom he's talking about. It's this freedom that is being spoken of in 2 Corinthians 3.17. This is what that passage actually means. Now where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. Because when Christ saves us, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And we have a clean conscience, a clear conscience, a conscience free not to do as we please to obey the lusts that war against our souls, as we heard last week, but to serve. So we are not to use this freedom as a covering for evil. If you had a, an elementary school experience like I did, uh, there was that one kid on the playground, and maybe some of you were that one kid on the playground, uh, who, you know, slug you in the shoulder or, or stick their leg out and, you know, trip you. And you're like, no, what are you doing? And, they, and this was their comeback, their witty comeback. What? It's a free country. Okay. Oh, yes. Your, your civic knowledge far outstrips mine. You got me. Um, you know, that, obviously that's an abuse of political freedom and we don't want to abuse our political freedom, and, and we are blessed. We are blessed with political freedom here in the West. Not everyone is, but we are, and we should be thankful for it. But let's not miss Peter's point. Peter's point is spiritual. We are not to abuse our spiritual freedom. We are not to make grace cheap. We are not to sin that grace may abound. If we are to suffer, it should be as a Christian. It should be for doing good, right? Don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief, as he says later. Come on. That's a no-brainer. So what should this look like in real life? What might this look like? Using our freedom to silence the foolishness and ignorance of unbelief. Tim Keller, in his book, Ministries of Mercy, relates this historical example not too long after this time. He writes, we learn from history that the early Christians were remarkably generous with economic aid to non-Christians. Julian became emperor of Rome in AD 361. He tried to revive paganism, Roman gods and goddesses, but found to his disgust that these older religions were falling to the rising popularity of the Christian faith. 
And in a letter that Julian writes to a pagan priest, he mentions the characteristics of Christianity that to his mind was making it so successful. He writes, it is disgraceful. While these impious Christians support their own poor and ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. In other words, the Christians were so good at not just tending to their own needs and not just serving themselves, but serving those around them who were perhaps even political, cultural, ethnic enemies. And doing it to such a degree that the regime, the programs of the empire were frankly lackluster. Isn't that a great vision? Wouldn't that be magnificent for a ruler here to say that of our church? That's why I love the fact that we do food bank and Project Hope and things like that. As we we try to make inroads to the needs of our communities so that by our actions we would silence the ignorance and foolishness of unbelief, that we would correct them gently through our good deeds through our actions. But mere service, of course, isn't enough. Yes, we're free to serve, but we could also just serve out of a sense of duty, right? But we need more than that. And that brings us to the third point. Christ's servants will be known, will be identified through the honor and love that they have and through holy fear. As it says in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He kind of closes it off with an honor sandwich. So this is a repeated thought. We need to understand what this word honor means. To honor doesn't necessarily mean to obey. I can honor my children without obeying my children just like Christ honored us. He honored his disciples by serving them. What does it mean to honor? Honor means to esteem or to uh, reckon as valuable. And it says that we need to honor everyone. Why everyone? Because every person on earth, it doesn't matter who they are, no matter how wicked or unlovable, every person bears the image of God himself. Think about that. As C.S. Lewis puts it, you have never met an ordinary person. James talks about, makes a reference to this when he talks about our use of the tongue to dishonor people Right? He says, we, with the tongue, we bless, and then we also curse men who are made in the image of God. How can that be? The opposite of honor is cursing, whether it's in our thoughts or in our speech or in our actions. So this, this concluding statement in this section by Peter is radical for at least two reasons to, to the time period he was writing. As Thomas Schreiner points out, 
Those with power and dignity, there at the end of the verse, the emperor, those with power and dignity are not exalted over ordinary people. We are to honor equally. That would have been a real tweak to anyone uh, who had a special allegiance to the emperor or social class. And second, he is clearly saying that God is not the emperor. Notice, fear God comes first. Fear God. Honor the emperor, yeah, but fear God comes first, and God is not the emperor, despite claims to the contrary during this time period. And why do we fear God? As Jesus said, don't fear those who can only kill the body, but fear him who can send the body and the soul into hell. The body they may kill, God's truth abides still. So, we certainly don't want to idolize or idealize our political leaders. We want to reserve that for Christ and Christ alone. Because none of our political leaders though they are God's servants, none of them will save us from what threatens us most. None of our political leaders will save us from what threatens us most. None of them can save us from sin, ultimately. They can't save us from the sin of other people, and more importantly, they can't save us from our own sin. Now, maybe we don't worship the emperor, right? Especially here in America, we kind of bridle against authority, don't we? I mean, we're kind of founded on the idea that we shouldn't subject ourselves. So what's our struggle today? Maybe we don't confuse God and emperor, but perhaps there's a, a more dangerous confusion. We need to be aware and be on guard against confusing American values or democratic values, or republican values, or conservative values, or liberal values for Christian values. They are not one and the same. Christian is all the good in those perspectives and more, and none of the bad. And we need to get this right. C.S. Lewis was aware of this and, the, and, and of the psychological fact that it's very easy in the West, especially in, a, in, in, in democracies, to confuse these things. Uh, this is an excerpt from the Screwtape Letters. If you're familiar with the Screwtape Letters, we've got this fictitious letter writing, uh, you know, uh, uncle demon to his uh, uh, nephew apprentice demon in training. And uh, just on how, how, do you, how do you win this guy to, to our side, okay, to the realm of darkness? And in one wonderful passage, he talks about political allegiance and partisan politics. He writes this. This is his advice to the demon. Let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard that spirit, as, that, that cause, as the most important part of being a Christian. Let him come to regard that, whatever that political cause is, 
as the most important part of being a Christian. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. And once you have made the world an end and faith a means to that end, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is nursing, provided provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. Now, I don't believe we should stay out of politics necessarily. We're in a free country. It's our privilege to vote. We should vote. We should have discussions about the kinds of things we ought to vote for, the kinds of people we ought to elect. We have a role to play in government, Christians do. I think that is a mercy of God. However, we need to ask a critical question. Is our political cause in the service of Christ or are we using Christ in the service of our political cause? To get this upside down is a dangerous, dangerous thing, not just to our own souls, but to the cause of Christ and, ironically enough, to the causes that we might otherwise rightly be engaged in fighting for. We can do it with things even that are just. That's how subtle our enemy is, right? He will take good things and twist them into ultimate things. We have to remember, as it says in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to remember Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is like a watercourse and God can bend it for his own purposes. He can bend it to the side we believe in. He can also bend it away from that. To summarize this passage then that we have, there's so much richness here. There's a great paradox at work. The paradox is that submission brings freedom. Submission to God brings freedom. And this freedom is manifest in service. It's manifest in love and it's manifest in honor to everyone, even those we might regard as political enemies whether they're the rulers, the people who are currently in power, or even those aspiring to power, or perhaps the people who are voting for those people aspiring to power. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all emperors, governors, and therefore we can trust this command. We can submit to it because there's no one in authority over us to whom God has not given that authority. And ultimately, God wants to correct the ignorance and foolishness of unbelief in his gospel. How? By living out our gospel through good works. This book was written to folks in exile. And I can't help but think of, again of Daniel. The, book, the whole book of Daniel, he's written in exile. Daniel's a great example. Here, he, he, he won the approval uh, of, of the political leaders and, and he just survived political leader after political leader. Nations crumbled around him. It was great. Even Nebuchadnezzar 
enslaved uh, all these nations and people and built these great gardens, you know, all these things. He went crazy for a little while there because of his pride. God brought him low. But the story I'm thinking of is uh, the lion's den. We've maybe all been familiar with this story. Maybe, maybe you, you, you've never heard this story if you're, if you're new to, to church and, and, and the Bible. But in a nutshell, uh, Daniel is pretty much railroaded by a, a, a kind of a ginned up law by guys who just have nothing, nothing short of a personal vendetta against him. They hate Daniel. They hate his success. They hate his religion. They hate his God. And so they come up with this piece of legislation, kind of bury it, get the king to sign off on it. And they throw him in a den of man-eating lions on this technicality. A technicality so strong, you know, so full of red tape that not even Darius can break it, right? Well, you know, my hands are tied. I'm sorry. Sounds very modern, actually. But, 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 but the scene that I'm thinking of is where Darius, he can't sleep, he can't eat, and first thing in the morning, he's thrown him into the lion's den, fine, law-filled, law and he yells down, Daniel, are you okay? And he's just like, oh no, it's probably just bits and pieces. And, and Daniel calls out to him, and what's the first thing he says? O king, may you live forever. What? Put yourself in a lion's den. Put yourself in a lion's den where you have been railroaded. <laughs> There's a mixing of metaphors, isn't there? Um, <laughs> where <laughs> you have been entrapped. You have been the, become the victim of injustice by a guy who's too weak and spineless to do anything about it, this leader. And God has saved your life miraculously. And the first words out of your mouth is, King, may you live forever. That's not what I would be saying, probably. I'd probably want to respond with a rude gesture of some kind. <laughs> or maybe some, I don't know, some, some spiritual posturing along the lines of Elijah. You know, oh, you're in trouble now. I'm still alive. <laughs> going to get you. (laughs) But can we be the kind of people, can we be the kinds of disciples who, even if we found ourselves in a literal or metaphoric den of lions, we would be able to say to the governing authorities, may you live forever. And as a sincere, honest prayer, may God have mercy on you and silence the ignorant unbelief of your heart so that you can understand what I know to be true, which is that this world and your power is fleeting, and one day you will have to give an account to God himself, and the only hope you have of salvation is in Jesus. And I want you to, have, to be the recipient of that mercy. Can we be like Daniel? It's only through the power of the Spirit that we can So now I want to turn to some questions for meditation, application, as we go into this next week, as we watch politics unfold. First question. And these are questions, by the way, that uh, have come out of my own heart. 
and my wife's heart. My wife and I, we, we met on the speech and debate team, so we like to argue. She taught AP government, <laughs> so she's really interested in politics. I teach philosophy. We like to argue. Our kids like to argue. We deserve it. Yeah. And we're just, you know, we, we've been beside ourselves with just the, the craziness and, the, and all of that. And so these are some questions that, that, that came out of some of these discussions. Number one, do I fear earthly political power and authority more than I fear God? What am I afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are you worried is going to happen in the next few weeks, next few months, next year? in the political realm, whether it's uh, at a national level or, or maybe just even at a local level. Maybe, you know, honestly, maybe you've got problems with local government, police, sheriff's deputies, whatever. What do you fear most? See, we can't allow ourselves to be so smitten by evil and tyranny and injustice, because it's out there, but we can't be so smitten by it that it breeds an attitude of fear that is, faith, that is faithlessness. And, but also, we can't let it breed self-righteousness either. We can't allow ourselves to get caught up in this, this kind of fervor and essentially tell ourselves that the evil of one man or woman or government is too great for even God to handle. Oh, yeah, Jesus can handle my little sins, my little sins. But, but Governor Finkelsnort, I mean, come on. That guy's a hopeless cause, and he's evil. <laughs> Maybe he is, but so are we. We were just as deserving of hell when Christ met us. And ultimately, we, as Christians, we have a hope of resurrection, don't we? And the return of Christ, we heard that last week, right? The hope of his returning. Now, if you're here for the first time or you haven't been in church much, you might be sitting here going, this is a weird message. It doesn't make sense to me. And I wouldn't be surprised because I need to let you in on something. We as Christians literally believe in a resurrection from the dead. We do. Amen? Yeah. Now, if that's news to you, I would love to talk to you about it. And I, and I bet a lot of people out there would love to talk to you about it. But we literally believe this because we believe Jesus did it. And he was the first fruit of those who felt who have fallen asleep. And one day we have the hope of eternal life. Not just this kind of quasi-weird, oh, we'll be up somewhere strumming a harp. No, literally, physically, at the end of all things. And so, yeah, if, if death is the end, then none of this makes sense. You're right. If death truly is the end, none of this makes sense. But we have a hope of eternal life with Christ. And that gives us the freedom. So number two, question number two. Do I elevate individualism and autonomy over a sense of civic, occupational, or familial responsibility? I know I'm previewing a little bit uh, the, the weeks to come here in this passage. But we're so, if you're like me, I, I so much love my individuality and my individualism and when I get free time, right? Free time is me time, Right? How often do we say, oh, I need some me time? And, the, and there's nothing wrong with having rest and Sabbath and all of that, but too easily that can become uh, a covering for evil, can it? We don't want to use that as a covering for evil. Question number three, do I use my freedom 
to love, serve, and honor all people. And for me, the word that sticks out in that question is all, all. And the question that follows immediately from it in my mind is, what are those, who are those people and those offices where I find myself, feel myself resisting giving honor? If it's, sh- if it's anything shy of all, it's, it's, it's not what God wants from me. At this point, you might want to write down a name or six of, 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 of names. Maybe, maybe it's, I don't know, political candidate, maybe a political candidate who could end up being the next emperor, the person you will owe honor to. Maybe it's the name of a public official of some kind who, if you're like me in your heart, or maybe even out your mouth, have thought words, said words that were dishonoring. Idiot. Moron buffoon, fool, or worse? Do I effectively curse men made in the image of God, men or women made in the image of God in my thoughts, in my words? Brothers and sisters, we need to be Christ's radiant bride in in this regard so that no one can bring an accusation against us that we're just a bunch of power-hungry, I don't know what. I'm gonna close with the words uh, from uh, a letter to the Washington Post that Dr. Barry Corey of Biola University wrote in the midst of this political fervor and people getting uh, worked up about so many things. He has these words to say, and he's addressing Christians and this really, really struck my heart, and I, and I hope it strikes yours. He says this. He says, when, when we could be on the streets serving neighbors, we are on social media rattling sabers. We have used our hands less to serve than to shake our fists. We have used our voices far more than we've used our ears. So many of the well-mounted arguments in the world will fall on deaf ears if they are divorced from empathy and couched in arrogance. If the caustic course of our culture is to be reversed, the virtue of kindness in the context of relationships must be prioritized, and I am calling on Christians to lead the way. Kindness is espoused in Scripture and embodied in Jesus. If the followers of the one who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, do not take the higher road of countercultural kindness, who will? Won't you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are the ultimate authority and that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and his kingdom is forever. Kingdoms come and go and there's great wickedness around us but we praise you knowing that you are on the throne and that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. You've called us into your marvelous light out of darkness. I pray that in thanks our lives would overflow in good works and by our good works, Father, we would silence the ignorance and foolishness of unbelief so that your gospel can be heard loudly and clearly. 
I thank you for the ministries that we enjoy at this church that do that, Lord. Make us even more faithful. Increase our reach into our communities. And Lord, do a work in our nation. We pray for our leaders as you desire all men to come to faith, to come to know you. We pray for the salvation of our president, vice president, and all the members of Congress, the governors, mayors, local authorities, Lord, police. Lord, there are so many. I pray that in the coming weeks we will look to these men and women and we will look for ways to honor them.